Welcome back. This is season 11, episode 11, and it's August 14th. My name is Matt O'Neill. On the other side of the screen is... I'm Erin Hodson. Yeah, and this is the Soybean Fest podcast. We're coming off the absolute... I hate to say that because somebody might prove us wrong in the future, but we can say this was a bad week. There's a lot going on. You're right. Yeah. Derecho? Yeah, very well said. Yeah. Who would have thought? Derecho. Uh, widespread, long-lived, straight-line windstorm. That would be the definition, right? It's it's a new word we had to learn this week. Started. And I had to learn how to cook on a camp stove. So there you go. What'd you cook? <laughs> we made bacon and eggs. Oh, nice. Did you yeah. make coffee too? Yeah. Nice. We had um, we had a protein fest. All the meat and fish that was in the refrigerator that had to get cooked up. Had it was a surf it. and turf. Yeah. Salmon, some steaks that I was saving for a special occasion. Mm-hmm. Oh, well. But honestly, I kind of feel uh, a lot of thank, a lot of gratitude and a little bit lucky because as bad as the storm was, it could have been a lot worse, and it was for some places. I mean, Ames, we were out of power. There are still places in Ames, um, well, it's Friday, so that are still without power, but it's a minority of the city. The electricity crews from at least two separate cities came to help Ames on Wednesday and Thursday when we got power. We had Algona and Webster City on our street. Thanks to them for helping out. Also, just want to thank my neighbors. We all kind of got together and cleaned out yards and moved branches. Yep. It was um, nice to see. How about you? Village. <laughs> uh, we had very little damage uh, to our structures and plants, so I'm really thankful for that. But our neighbors didn't fare as well. So there's some uh, bigger trees that came down, some structures that were um, impacted. So I feel really lucky that really we didn't have much happen to us. Um, the impact on farming was not as lucky. How many counties were impacted by the straight line winds that knocked corn down? Yeah, I'm going to learn more on Monday. We're having kind of a special session that includes grain storage folks, um, some engineers, uh, some of the agronomists and things to understand the, the how, how widespread the injury was. Uh, I think if you listen to KCCI News, they said something like 10 million acres based on the um, the path of the, the windstorm that kind of went across central much of central Iowa. So it could be up to at least 10 million acres impacted to some degree. But um, I think the bigger question will be harvest because there are some fields that were damaged so bad that they're trying to salvage uh, the crop just harvesting for silage right now because it will not make it to October. And then, um, you know, what to do with that grain if it's tainted, if it's on the ground or if it gets moldy or toxins start to come in because the plants have had injury as a, as a, you know, the grain quality is also coming into question. So just lots of unknowns at this time. Yeah, I heard the 10 million uh, number as well. Yeah. And that, that was shocking to me. 
I also saw on, I think it was CNN posted a picture from space where you could see the devastation, mm -hmm. you know, the, the amount of vegetation that was down compared to counties that weren't as, um, as impacted. Yeah. I thought Megan Anderson did a nice job of summarizing with just some initial thoughts, the, um, the impact of this to corn. Noting she had three bullet points that plants could be totally dead, broken off below the year, or um, you know, wilting above the breakage site. Uh, plants that are pinched over but not wilted yet, maybe broken above the year. And then plants that are only slightly root lodged or leaning and uh, could recover. So, you know, not to belittle this because it is tremendous damage. Uh, but corn can recover. You know, we see this with corn rootworm when the larvae feed on the roots to the extent that it can no longer hold the plant upright. A wind, not as strong as what came through on the derincho, but a wind can knock those plants down. And after the larvae have ceased feeding, the plant will recover to some extent. It'll lay down some new roots and that plant will gooseneck up. But this is late in the year, much later than when rootworm feeding has ended. And I, I, don't, I wasn't following the corn crop particularly close this year. We talked in a previous podcast about how the soybean crop was a little bit more advanced than usual. I don't, I don't know where the corn crop was. Did you have any sense of how close we were to years past in terms of yeah, development? I think, it's, I think it's pretty much on track for normal um, development based on maturity groups. I think the bigger issue was, yeah, corn can survive. It will try and upright itself, but the issue is uh, combines trying to collect the ears when you have uh, lodged or partially lodged is uh, the end result is farmers have to go slower or they might just have to go one direction. So could you imagine making like double the passes because uh, yeah. they can't go crisscross applesauce. I mean, they have to just keep on circling around and around it. Yeah, yeah. It takes a lot of fuel to do basically like double time through a field. And, and the, that vegetation is going to have to get taken off of the field, right? I mean, it can't be left there. So there's going to have to be some kind of removal and, and hopefully something can be harvested. But then the question is, is it worth, you know, the effort to, to get that off of the field and dry it down and you know, go through a regular harvest period. And that's going to be a, a, an issue that we're going to talk about a little bit later in this podcast about just how much do you put into a crop when something bad happens. And with corn and the, the damage from the derincha, it's, it's really challenging. I wish them all the best. Yeah, yeah I think uh, when it comes to grain quality, certainly not my expertise, but last year, people were harvesting wet corn wetter than they wanted and there was a propane shortage if you remember and so people couldn't dry the corn to the degree that they wanted to and so a lot of corn had some spoilage or just reduced quality throughout the winter and so unfortunately a lot of farmers sold their grain um, they wanted it you know so they wanted it out of their bins and so unfortunately there's a lot of empty bins sitting uh, out around Iowa and those that really mangled just a, a little bit of driving that I did yesterday. Uh, they look like brand new um, silos and they were kind of just crimped in the middle. And there's yeah, some fields yeah. where 
I saw metal pieces just sitting in a field and I couldn't see uh, a grain bin anywhere near. So I was like, how far did this thing travel? It was pretty scary to see that. Yeah. So to give our listeners who weren't in the area that was impacted some idea of what we experienced in Ames and Des Moines, wind speeds up from 70 to 80 miles an hour, but in other parts of the state as high as 112 miles per hour. And at that range, I I think I understand this correctly, that that's a category one hurricane blown across the land. And it's picking up material and it's, it's, you know, I thought it moved quickly through Ames. You know, we were under a warning uh, is that right? It's a warning, right? When it's ac- when it's happening, uh, we were on a warning for about thirty minutes, and the worst of it lasted fifteen, um, as it blew through our house. I was in the house at the time, um, but you know that happening at hurricane speed, winds moving across the landscape, picking up material, and you know, carrying it across the state. Yeah, there's probably going to be a lot of that debris everywhere. And um, and again, it's uh, remarkable. These events have happened in the past, but the scale is, I think, unique. I mean, the the multi-county, multi-state, because it reached across into Illinois. Uh, I don't know. I haven't heard anything from Wisconsin, Minnesota. I have some family in Minnesota. They said they got rain, but they didn't get the the, wind. Yeah, it's rough. Yeah, moment of silence for the down yeah, corn. <laughs> it's hard to comprehend. Um, you know, soybeans look fairly good. Um, they can tolerate a little bit more wind, maybe than some of the the corn that I saw. But even the corn that was standing, it looked like a weed whipper went through there. The leaves looked shredded off the plant, and so it looked really kind of eerie to mm-hmm. just see some of those fields yesterday. And to add insult to injury. There were some locations, I think this was true in Guthrie Center or um, Dallas Center, maybe, um, hail that followed the wind, that came, or sorry, came after the wind. So you had down corn uh, or lodged corn and then hail that came in and shredded what was left. Yep. I, I don't know, I'm not an expert on this, uh, but I'm hoping that crop insurance at some point can kick in and uh, help farmers recover some of what was lost because it, it, a lot was lost yeah. yeah yeah hoping to learn more Monday maybe I can share uh, at our next episode what I'm hearing about from other experts yeah yeah I'd be curious to know uh, if they talk at all about soybean damage because I yeah my ex- observations have been that the soybeans seem to do okay they're low enough to the ground that they didn't lodge as as much um, but um, I don't know if that's true everywhere. Maybe you can ask that question on Monday. Maybe we could get back together on Tuesday and do a follow-up. I'd, I'd be real curious to know what you learned from that. Sure. Well, should we move on? Yeah. Um, hey, let's talk some aphids. Okay. So last, uh, oh, gee, it seems like, uh, so I was going to say last week. It seems like it was weeks ago, but it was only Monday that Brian Lang sent an email to us saying the one field that he uh, goes to repeatedly throughout the year and is in the area that he's been scouting for multiple years had reached threshold, surpassed threshold, sorry, it was at about 500 aphids per plant for the entire field. And um, 
he saw very little evidence of parasitism. So, you know, this is a, a field that is, um, you know, if, if it were in an earlier stage, uh, we would say, yeah, go, go for it, spray that. Um, but it's kind of late in the year. And this gets into that area, kind of a gray area of do you spray or don't you? Um, and that's that's a place where we don't all we don't have as much data as we would like, I think, to be able to say, yeah, spraying at a population of 500 per plant is going to pay off in the end. So I, I, I don't know where we're at. I, I, it's a little bit confusing to me because I, I, I wish I had more data to be more confident. Um, I can't promise somebody that uh, things would work out if they did spray, but you know, if this was a couple of weeks ago, I would say, yeah, by all means, you should be treating that field. What do you think, Erin? Yeah, this is a difficult question to answer. Um, when it be when, when aphids are starting to climb in August, I think about a few things. Um, or, or does the field have any other pests? Because sometimes bean leaf beetle, stink bugs, uh, grasshoppers can be causing direct injury to the pods. And so that's a concern if you have aphids on top of that. Um, oftentimes uh, this part of your aphids don't start, they start to not look normal to me. They look small. They, they don't look like they have the reproduction capacity that they do earlier in the season. So they are slowing down their offspring. And so um, I just don't think they have as big as impact um, and, and when they're not as like the plump, juicy green aphids that you see earlier. Um, I do have a couple data sets to show that treating when aphids hit the threshold, when you have mid to full seed set, I don't see a yield response. So uh, I don't think the, the impact of, of aphids during that time is as important as earlier in the, in the growing season. So I, I would have to ask a couple questions first before I would say yes, treat or no treat. I need more information. And just to follow up on what Brian sent us, his field was in the R5.5 stage and maturity running at least a week ahead of normal, which is a topic we've been talking about earlier in the summer as well. Yep. So, yeah, so just to maybe summarize what I heard you say for Brian's field, you would say probably don't spray. Uh, one, because the crop is very far along in maturity. And two, as Brian noted, about 85% of his aphids were what we in the business call white dwarfs, the smaller, anemic, pale looking aphids that we don't know, but you know, given the appearance and what little data we have, appear not to have as big an impact on the plant. Um, yeah, but his, the field that he monitors hit threshold over a week ago. Is that right? Um, and then this week he gave us a report that they went to 500. So numbers are climbing uh, basically exponentially in this field that he's very closely monitoring. So I probably would have because the week before it was uh, early seed set, I probably would have uh, made an application. Yeah, this is, this is interesting. I'm looking at the email now and August 10th, 507 aphids per plant. Yeah. August 3rd, 189 aphids per plant. Mm -hmm. So our threshold is 250. Um, yeah, again, kind of a gray area. I probably would have said to that field, if you're at 180 now, uh, go back tomorrow and 
and the next day. And heck, use Aaron's speed scouting to confirm because uh, counting by uh, aphid per plant is uh, probably going to be well, two. Well, if he was, if you remember, it, it it climbed up very quickly. The number of number of plants infested, and then the number of aphids infested. So if he was simply using speed scouting, he would have treated a long time ago. I think he noted that. So that's a very conservative yeah. approach to yeah. to aphid suppression. If he was if he was you know basing it on aphids per plant, like you said, he was monitoring every week, I probably would have made a midweek count and just kind of backed up my thought of these numbers are climbing really fast and probably more likely to make a treatment if it's 189 versus 235. You know, I mean, yeah. I guess it depends on uh, the risk mitigation of this farmer, how, you know, how risky they want to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the speed scouting helps get you to a decision faster and with a little bit uh, more confidence than trying to count per plant and then being in this sort of gray area of like, well, I'm getting there close, you know, I'm getting to what uh, these entomologists say is a threshold, but it's not quite there yet. And this is probably one where you would, would you say you'd be conservative and go ahead and spray to, but yeah, now we're- Especially if I had some other pests with like defoliating pests in, in the mix with that, which is something we haven't been able to establish when you have chewing and sucking pests at the same time. Um, likely there was other things going on. So uh, yeah, it kind of depends on the farmer, but probably more willing to treat than not treat. So your crew is going up now to take a look at the fields that, um, or the plots rather that uh, were sprayed as part of your efficacy trial? Yep, they um, they scouted on Monday, sprayed on Tuesday, and they're going back today to assess three days after treatment. And our graduate student, Evi Air, uh, went up in between the spraying and then today's evaluation to collect aphids to test with uh, some assays whether there's evidence for pyrethroid resistance in those populations. And I'm looking at a summary that he's provided us um, for three years because he's been doing this for Sutherland, which is where your crew is headed today. He's been yep. doing this since 2017. So he's yep. got data from 2017, um, 2019, and now 2020. Uh, he doesn't have data, at least in this summary, for 2018 from Sutherland, but um, Anyway, just there are three years they're not for that location, they're not contigu continuous. And what he has seen over the past, well, three to four years is at that location, there are aphids who are more resistant than our susceptible lab colony. So let's just be clear about what, what I mean by that. That's a colony that we, we've, I've been keeping, well, before you came to Iowa State, uh, about 50, ooh, 12, 14 years ago, um, we've maintained it. So that colony has never really seen insecticides. It's been kept uh, in growth Has never chambers. really or never? Well, what I mean, that's good that you picked up on that because it is, the colony has never experienced insecticides since being in colony. But we have taken aphids out from that colony and exposed them to insecticide to see how susceptible they are. And they're very susceptible. They, uh, 
they end up being um, our, our comparison point for other aphids. And from that, EVIR uh, creates a resistance ratio. So the resistance ratio in Sutherland in 2017 was 3.77. Um, we've collected aphids from Minnesota where field failures have occurred, where the insecticide just didn't work um, to, the degree, to the degree that it should. And the resistance ratio for those populations is 37. So tenfold more, magnitude, magnitude of, an order of magnitude greater than Sutherland in 2017. Um, he hasn't calculated the resistance ratios um, for this year, but he has learned in a different uh, uh, assay that they are surviving exposure to um, Lambda Cyhalothrin, Lambda Cyhalothrin and Bifenthrin. And this is using the glass assay that was developed by Bob Cook and uh, his crew up in Minnesota. So what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that over the course of some three years, aphids repeatedly show up in Sutherland that are resistant to the um, pyrethroids. They're, they were there this year. Um, the question then becomes, are there enough of them that the use of a pyrethroid is not going to work in terms of suppressing the population and preventing yield loss. And I think this is an issue that farmers maybe, are, if not around the state, at least in areas where they're using these products still need to think about, maybe go back and scout because uh, given where we are, um, there, may be, there may be yield loss that could occur this year um, if they were using a pyrethroid. What do you think? I think you're accurate. No matter what they're spraying, I think they should always go back after the re-entry interval and see, evaluate the performance because there's there's mechanical issues that could certainly happen like plug nozzles and, and all that. But then there's also just assessing mortality. If you think you got good coverage, but you see a lot of survivors, then a lot of questions start coming up. And so a soybean aphid or whatever the target pest is, I think people should step back in those fields and check. Yeah, and the nice thing about Evair's work and, and then your crew as well is we can we can track the performance of insecticides and eliminate alternative hypotheses. So by going in and looking before and after a spray to see, all right, are there insecticide resistant aphids there? We can say, well, it's probably not a stuck nozzle, right? It was probably uh, this resistance that has developed and is now um, much more persistent in the population. We still have a bunch of questions about this. Like I mentioned earlier, the resistance ratio, just how resistant they are, um, can vary. And in 2017, we weren't as, our population in Sutherland weren't as resistant as populations in Minnesota where insecticides were, were failing. But that may change, that does change as you continue to select for resistance. And so we don't know yet, but based on those glass assays, glass vial assays where we put the aphids in a vial and follow their survival, um, it's looking like there are aphids that are as resistant as what they have seen in Minnesota. So- Yeah, I think my efficacy evaluation is best case scenario for maximum contact of product to aphid body 
Um, I think the the odds of that success go down when you have commercial level applications going on with either ground or aerial rigs. And so it, it would be difficult to, to translate that because sometimes I think coverage is a real issue in bulk fields. But um, yeah, even with like best possible scenarios for coverage, we're still seeing a lot of survivors in our small plots. That's a great point. And it's not to say that commercial applicators are doing a bad job. It's just that there's a lot more variation that they're dealing with in a 100 to 500 acre field that you've eliminated by working in a smaller plot. So you can get a more immediate answer to how well is this insecticide working? Yeah, when you spray by hand versus using big equipment, there is just a lot of variation in yeah. that application itself. Yeah, and I think you've, I've heard you say this. Um, I don't know if I've seen a figure on it, but you've seen a decrease in the performance of pyrethroids over a three to four year period. Is that fair to say? Not yeah, so, well, and just to, to finish the thought, not so much in yield protection, but in how many aphids they're killing. Is that fair? I'd to say, say that's fair. Yeah. If we have, we, we look at a combination of either active ingredients alone or with multiple group numbers together. And it seems like when it's just a pyrethroid, they end up having more cumulative aphid days or aphid exposure compared to other treatments. And sometimes this is measurable in yield, but then in other times it's not always, it doesn't always show up in the yield responses. Yeah, so um, I guess you wouldn't be surprised that now we might see something that would look like a field failure because over the past three years, it, the, the efficacy, the ability of the pyrethroids to kill aphids has gone down. And selection, evolution works that, you know, the more you apply a selection pressure, the more you give those resistant aphids an advantage over the susceptible ones and they're gonna build up in the population. So in some ways, this is not surprising. However, um, you know, if you're not as deep into this subject as we are, it can be really surprising because when you look at your yield at the end of the year, you'll be like, oh, it worked. You know, I, I got, you know, trend-lined or average or, you know, whatever yields that were acceptable to you. Um, but now that this resistance is building up to the point where we're starting to see it more frequently, I think, over time, but and maybe in intensity in terms of the amount of the resistant aphids that make up the population, there, I, 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 I'm worried that farmers are going to be disappointed uh, in the performance of those products. And I'm surprised it's held up so long, honestly, 20 years for uh, the amount of pyrethroids, which I think is the automatic go-to choice for farmers and soybeans in Iowa. I'm surprised that we haven't seen a faster decline in performance, honestly. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, this We could go real inside baseball on the biology, ecology of the aphid, and why it, it developed resistance is probably not so interesting, but what you're posing is... I think really interesting well, why it didn't happen sooner and um, not quite clear why that is. Um, let's say you're a farmer now and you go out and you scout your field after you sprayed per our recommendation and you find that uh, yeah looks like the product didn't work. You still have lots of aphids, hundreds if not thousands. What should you do? 
um, uh, this is hard. It depends on the time of year and it depends on how much money they're willing to invest. Um, If they decided it was early enough in the growing season that they still wanted to take some action, especially if they had some other things at their past going on, uh, a retreatment may be necessary, but I would definitely use something else, use a different active ingredient. So and this I is think that's what's been happening in Minnesota quite a bit. Yeah. Oh, they in Minnesota they are retreating with a different active ingredient. Because because the aphids hit threshold so early in the season and they rebound and hit threshold again. Yeah. And it's still uh, you know plenty of time left in the season, so they'll retreat, but they're they're using something else. So um, this I think is really challenging because when you, we say something else, a different active ingredient, a different insecticide we're talking about something that is more expensive, right? And- um, Could be more expensive, yeah. Likely more expensive. Yeah. So- There's other generic products like um, generic chlorpyrifos that they could probably use. If it's available and all. Um, so the challenge I think is how, like you just said, how much money are you willing to put into this? And we've had a student ask that question and look at the math do the math on, you know, how much is it going to cost to do a second application with a different insecticide and what are the benefits in terms of your yield? And it's, it, it gets complicated because it depends upon the active ingredient and depends upon, you know, just how much yield protection you got with the first application. But to make a long story and a complicated story short, most of the time it doesn't pay off is my understanding of her work. And, um, you know, that's not to say that that's true for everybody, but it is, I think it's important to consider that, like you just said, late in the year with a more expensive insecticide, it may not be worth the treatment. Um, yeah, and especially as you approach full seed set, I'm not sure you would even break even from making multiple applications, much less making a profit. And one question I don't think we can answer that we brought up in our conversation with the, um, with the lab this morning was, uh, is there crop insurance? Can, is crop insurance something you can um, address when it comes to uh, pests that are resistant to insecticide? My just gut has said, no, there would be no insurance for that, but I don't know. Well, I, I tell you what, I'm going to, I'm going to double check. I'm going to contact some uh, colleagues that are economists that work in ag and see if what the status of that is. Cause I, I don't know. I, I, I like you, my gut says probably not, but I would, I would want to, I'm just going to double check and then maybe we can come back on Tuesday. And when you um, have heard from the Dorencho symposium, uh, I'll, I'll try to share what I learned from that as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, it sounds good. So this was a long podcast and we covered a lot of downer stuff and I'm going to add one more downer thing to it. I don't have a fun insect trivia question for today. Oh man. Yeah. Sorry. No fun today. No, no fit fun. today. Yeah. You gotta get, <laughs> yeah, I'm not very fit. It was a, it was a long week. Um, but We'll come back with one next week and try to make up for for all the bad news. Hopefully we can have some good news to share. Yeah. Anything else, Aaron? 
Um, just keep on scouting. There's mites, there's caterpillars, and beetles are still thriving in some areas. So no matter what you have or you think you have, maybe it's just worth uh, another few passes out in fields this week. Sounds good. All right. Well, we'll pick this up on Tuesday. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Thanks. See you.